0: City University Television presents The American Theatre Wing Seminars Working in the Theatre This seminar Hi, I'm Doug Leeds, President of the Board of Directors of the American Theatre Wing. On behalf of our board and Sandra Gilman, our chairperson, I wish to welcome you to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars, which are being broadcast by CUNY TV from the Graduate Center at the City University of New York. Before we begin, we want to thank the Annenberg Foundation for their generous support of our seminar programs. The Wing is best known as the creators of the Tony Awards Honoring Excellence on Broadway. What you may not know is that we also provide annual grants and scholarships to New York theaters and theater students. We also broadcast a weekly radio theater program, Downstage Center, with XM Satellite Radio. All our educational programs are available free, on demand, from our website at www.americantheaterwing.org. Today, we turn our attention to the starting point of all great theater, the playwright. We are going to hear from four very distinguished authors who between them have multiple Tonys and several Pulitzer Prizes. It is my great pleasure to introduce the moderator of today's seminar, editor and critic Jeffrey Eric Jenkins. Thank you.
1: Welcome everyone to the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre Seminars. Today's topic is playwriting, and I have to tell you that I feel like I've landed on some sort of theatrical Olympus. I'm surrounded today by extraordinary talent in playwriting. Uh, I'd like to take this opportunity to introduce these folks to you, but remember that they are not just playwrights, they are also actors, they are also producers, they are advocates for theatre artists, and they are nurturers, mentors, of the next generation of theatre artists. Probably, I think, the most important thing that they do. To my far right, I want to introduce Harvey Firestein, <laughs> a noted <laughs> actor. <laughs> Next is one of the grand men of American Letters, Edward Albee. <laughs> it sometimes escapes notice that Edward Albee is also a noted producer. Uh, and, director, my
2: and director. And director, and
1: director <laughs> I beg your pardon, and director, <laughs> how well I know. And to my immediate left is Paula Vogel, playwright. Paula is having a, a series, of, uh, an honored series at the Signature Theatre Company this season. Uh, it's a, a wonderful opportunity, it's a great company, and it's a great opportunity to take a look at someone's work over the course of the season. And to Paula's immediate left, we have John Weidman, the book writer. <laughs> noted for his work, of course, with Stephen Sondheim, but also the book writer of Big, and also the book writer of the dance musical, the Tony Award-winning dance musical, Contact. <laughs> well, we've had all the applause already, so uh, we should
2: just... Uh, John, John is also president of the Dramatist Guild Absolutely. Council.
1: And this is... This is a very important. As thing the president of the Dramatist <laughs> Guild, of course, John is involved in that kind of advocacy that I mentioned earlier for other artists, and making sh- sort of holding, um, shall we say, producers' feet to the fire, and making sure that <coughs> all of that
3: happens. Is that right, John? It is. And Edward is a member of the Council and has been forever, and, and is very good at holding our feet to the fire to make sure we do what we're supposed to. Now, this season is a
1: remarkable season, because we ha- with this group of people, we have significant revivals of your works. On, coming on the stage now, in, in John Weidman's case, we recently saw Assassins, a brilliant production, that was doing business <laughs> doing business in the 90 percentile, 95 percentile, and suddenly evaporated this summer. I, I was sorry to see. Um, we have uh, Harvey Firestein is doing, um, they're doing a, a revival of La Cage a Full, And we have um, a revival of Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf. So, what I'm wondering here, as we, as I think about all of this amazing work that's happening, uh, is how old we all are. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, we can't exclude any of us in that. What was it you said before we started? We're all gray except me. (laughs) I'm much too young to be gray.
4: And mostly gay.
1: Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Well, what can you say? I, n- I knew I could count on you. Uh, and good night. <laughs> now, now, Harvey Firestein, you started your career uh, working as a drag performer when you were fifteen, and then I, I seem to recall a performance as Andromache in the Trojan Women, somewhere in the 1970s. Is that correct? Uh, Does that come to mind at all? Oh, yeah. You didn't pay him the hush money. (laughs) No,
4: I I actually began – I was uh, uh, always an art student, and um, I went to the High School of Art and Design, and and somebody's mother was starting a community theatre group and asked if we would make posters, you know, some of the art kids. And we went down to make posters, and then they said, would you like to pull the curtain? And So so I pulled the curtain, and then they were doing Our Town. Um, And uh, my best friend was going to audition for the newspaper boy, but he was embarrassed, because it was only the only person who showed up to audition for the role, and he figured he'd get it. uh, but he made me audition with him, and I got it. Um, <laughs> and, uh, and, that, and, that, and that really impacted our relationship until his death. Um, <laughs>
2: oh, no. uh, Upstaging even then, I Yes, think. really. <laughs> and,
4: and I started, you know, so I started in community theatre, which – which, uh, the gallery players, which still exist in oh, Park Slope, I was beautiful. one of the yeah. founding members at, at 15, but um, some stupid reviewer came from Manhattan. Um, When we were doing Barefoot in the Park, I was playing the Telephone Man, and I had to paint on stubble, so I would look old enough, (laughs) because I was 15, and uh, gave me a great review. and, And in the paper was an ad for an audition in the city. So I took the train from Brooklyn into the city, and there was Andy Warhol, and there was a dress, and the rest is history.
1: That's great. Well, now, your, your plays uh, – I should say, your plays, the Torch Song Trilogy, the three plays, seem to have developed over time, because they appeared, uh, first International Stud, I think, and then Fugue in a Nursery, right. and um, then the third one, of course.
4: Well, I, was, I was working as a, as a, as a performer, and I, and I was working with a lot of playwrights, and, um, and and, I, and somebody said, why don't you write a play? And I said, well, I can't spell. And somebody said the most important thing to me that was ever said to me, of course, now there's spell check and things like that, but at that time somebody said, there's people that get about $4 an hour that will fix your spelling. You go ahead and write. And I, and I mean, and, and that's advice I still actually give out. And, and I sat down and I wrote a play um, for all the playwrights who were writing for me. Um, H. M. Katukis and Ronald Tavel and the r- most I was in the ridiculous movement, mm-hmm. which, were the, which was, uh, um, as Edward remember, they, um, they s- uh, their position was um, um, we've gone beyond the absurd. Our position is now absolutely ridiculous, and that was the, <laughs> the birth of the ridiculous <laughs> movement. And, um, yeah. and and so I wrote my first play, and the Village Voice, uh, in their review, said I was called compared me to the devil come to earth, and I knew I was onto something. <laughs> um, <laughs> And, and so I wrote, but I <coughs> wrote. You know, I never took it very seriously.
1: How d- How did that journey <laughs> in Torch Song Trilogy? How did, How does that journey in Torch Song Trilogy that that character Arnold Beckoff, who I, I think must have some kind of personal relationship with you, how does that um, How does that reflect your own kind of journey? It's a journey of of healing. It's a journey of understanding. It's a journey toward art in a certain way too.
4: But it, but it was a practical journey as well. Uh, Ellen Stewart, the, uh, La Mama herself, who I started working with when I, when I was sixteen, um, I, I wanted to put on this play. I had written International Stud, the first act, and, um, and it took me a long time to get her t- convinced to put it on, because I was to be in drag in it, it um, and she wanted me out of women's clothing. She, she, she she felt that I had a career larger than, than women's clothing. <laughs>
2: <laughs>
4: <laughs> and um, anyway, so, so she didn't want to put on the show, um, and so uh, when I finally convinced her to do it, the director said, tell her it's a trilogy. And I said, why is it? Because then she's stuck doing the other two parts, and we don't have to fight <laughs> with her again. So that is how, actually how Torch Song Trilogy was born.
3: Did you um, have – I'm so, curious, did you have any aspect of the other the subsequent two plays in your head when you were writing the first one? Absolutely not. Nothing at all? No.
4: I wrote the first one, we did it, it moved off Broadway, it bombed, I went back, I wrote part two, because we had the space for the next season. It it. It happened that it was during the CETA program, do you remember the CETA program, the government program, and we had all these musicians. So I got the idea of writing a play for four actors and then have them represented by the… Four musicians. I always loved Peter and the Wolf, um, and and I had that idea. So I and I placed it in this giant bed, and the headboard of the bed would be the four musicians, and they would have this fugue. So I, and so I wrote Fugue in a Nursery, um, and that got bought for off Broadway and moved off Broadway and bombed. And um, <laughs> and then and then I sat down to write the third play, and this l- pain in the ass little woman named Estelle Gettleman. St- uh, who went on to become Estelle Getty, um, would come, she was a big fan of mine for years and she would come, she was only about that big. <laughs> and, um, and she said, why don't you write a role for a mother and I'll play a mother and the idea of this woman that big playing my mother um, just really tickled me. So um, I got the idea to write the third act, you know. Uh, um, well, I, a friend of mine had also been beaten very badly in the park and and you know, so, so that gave me my theme. And, and, um, and, and I wrote the third act um, of Torch Song, which got bought for Broadway, never got there. Um, and then it took me two years to get anybody to put on the three plays together. Mm-hmm. And it, that was another battle.
1: That's very interesting because in, in his review of the three works together as Torch Song trilogy, Mel Gusso said uh, that in a certain way they worked better as a three, even though it was a four hour. Uh, right. in the evening, he said it worked better as a three-act play, and it right. all cohered yeah. in a certain way that there was an arc to it.
4: Well, and 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 there certainly was, but part of that I think is in the editing too, <laughs> of knowing it's going to be done as an evening, so you, so you, you know, you you can take out stuff and you can put, you know, and you, but but also, I mean, the same critics who had killed it in commercial productions talked about how extensively I'd rewritten and I didn't rewrite a word. I mean, mm. I did edit a little. Interesting. But, you know, but you're not going to fight with them because they gave you a good review, so what the hell? Yeah. So, um, but yeah, I mean, that tour song was, was definitely a longer, more involved journey, you know, than, than any of the other th- things I'd written. But,
1: but well, well, speaking of long and involved journeys, Paula Vogel, your work has been appreciated by those in the know for more than two decades. Right. And now, the, the, the current play that's at the Signature Theatre, which will be closing soon, The Oldest Profession, now this is the first time that it's actually come to New York. Right. And the, the other plays, and Baby Make Seven has, has played here. Although somebody uh, – I, ra- I ran across a review that somebody named an, uh, by Vi Bremen
5: wrote that play. Oh, yes. I, I, that's. That was my pseudonym, and uh, I wrote a letter to the New York Times, after Mel Gusso's review, informing them that Vi Bremen had leapt from the Brooklyn Bridge, uh, <laughs> <and> I <Vi Bremen laughs> turned to that pseudonym. Um, I just wanted to have a pseudonym. Um, it's very interesting. I've been on um, a number of, of panels, which I always adore, because it's just a thrill to hear other writers and how they think. And I look around, and then I go, you know. <coughs> Of course, I, I expect um, to be the, the only lesbian on the panel, but actually, there's something more significant. I've never been done on Broadway. Um, I am an off-Broadway baby. Um, I am of a generation. It's sort of like I didn't find the New York apartment in time, so I ended up moving to Providence. If I'd found that New York apartment, I'd still be a New Yorker. But it's a similar thing in terms of when I finally got here. Um, from the stage readings and the holes in the wall that did me. um, The tiny little 50-seat theaters in Juneau, Alaska, uh, or Theater Rhinoceros, or Wired Women Productions. Um, And I have been told that my plays are too intimate for larger spaces, has been um, what uh, I've been told. Um, There's a very interesting thing that's happened in terms of, of new plays right now, and where we are delegating new plays uh, commercially, and this I'm sure we're all going to jump in, in terms of what's happening right now with Off-Broadway. Fortunately, I'm so hooked on the process that it never occurred to me, um, really, uh, to be anything else but in love uh, with the actors and the directors in the room that I'm in. Um, it, It is occurring to me as I get older that there's a glass ceiling of Broadway and that I won't go through that glass ceiling. But it's a very interesting thing for me. I mean, this is the, f- the signature allows me the opportunity to see a play I wrote 24 years ago. It's a new play to me. I've never had the chance to work on it in the room with actors of this
1: caliber.
5: Mm. Um, hot and Throbbing, I'm still working on it. It's still a new play. Why? Um, it is so scary right now to not-for-profit theatres, and I understand why, that I haven't gotten the chance to work with really great actors. I've had two productions um, in the United States, other than the -the hole-in-the-wall theaters that I can't go see because I teach. Um, So it's a new play. And if it hadn't been for the signature, I would never get these plays into New York. To me right now, the American theatre and new plays, that what really we're doing is there has been a censorship of what voices get shown and heard and seen, and what voices don't. And by the way, that has to do... With, for example, *Spook House*, which, by the way, when I went and saw am it, am I having the right title? I thought it was so magnificent, it was so disturbing. This is a play that Harvey did. Is I guess the second, the, the play after. Was this the play after?
4: After *Lecage*.
5: After *Lecage*, I went and saw this off Broadway, and it was everything that you look for in a new play. It told us a truth that had my hands shaking. I was shaking. So it's very interesting what plays are done or off-Broadway versus what's done commercially. It's very interesting what's chosen for New York. What is, for me, a great thing right now is that there are a lot more holes in the wall with younger pr- producers, and that there's actually a vitality out in the regional theatre, as well as in the downtown theatre, of plays that run for three weeks with plays that are done on a $5,000 budget, with plays that are being written by, you know, twenty-one-year-olds to whatever, that come and they're gone. And to me, that's really where I situate. This, there's one other luxury, this is the first time I've ever seen a revival of my work. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, partly this is by choice. I have not gone to see Baltimore Waltz for the past ten years, because I just thought, you know, it chews me up to go see it, so I decided to, to, to leave it uh, behind. And we're about to start rehearsal with Mark Brokaw, Kristen Johnson, David Marshall Grant, Jeremy Webb, in two weeks. Um, what's terrifying to me, as I watch everybody's revivals, and we were talking about this, is that politically nothing's changed, and they're still telling the truth, uh, in terms of my, my panelists on this stage, um, that the things that seared us... Uh, from the work of my colleagues 10 or 15 years ago, because it was telling a truth about the direction the country was heading in, S-sear us still. Um, so that's also kind of uh, uh, an interesting thing. Um, I don't know uh, what to say in terms of how we support art uh, and theater, um, which I think is the truth-teller right now, um, and has always been as there's an economic suppression, uh, and a a suppression by The New York Times um, uh, is something that's very, very disturbing uh, in terms of the artists that we're not uh, hearing from. Well,
1: you mentioned something very interesting when you said something about The New York Times uh, suppressing coverage, and uh, this was something that we were sort of chatting about before we began the broadcast, and I I was wondering if uh, you could elaborate about that a little bit, and I think that everyone has uh, some feelings about this. We should talk about what's going on right now in
5: in New York. Right. There's what I would call a disappearing act, in terms of theatre coverage. Um, Now, I'm not talking about critics and criticism. I think that the more reviews, the better. Um, I don't know if everybody else does this, but I actually giggle when I read really deliciously Scathing reviews of my work. That's not my I don't do that.
2: <laughs>
5: <laughs> or as George Bernard do, Shaw I, said
2: I, I only do it of other people's work. <laughs> <laughs> I
5: or as George Bernard Shaw famously wrote to a critic, I am sitting in the smallest room of my house reading your review. Soon I shall put it behind me. <laughs> 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 I think it's also another delightful way of looking at it. But I think it's not the notion of criticism, it's that there's too little of it. There's no coverage, and we've seen it start to dwindle. It's dwindled in alarming ways. Um, we've seen that theatre has been buried inside the arts and leisure, that it's all about film. We saw that the um, counter-reviews on Sunday of, by Vincent Canby disappeared. Uh, that there never was that notion of a kind of counterpart, um, and the the reviews and the coverage and the stories uh, the preview interviews have dwindled and dwindled and dwindled. Now we have just heard, and this is what this is, uh, comment is projected is that off Broadway reviews will no longer be available in print; they will only be available online
2: not all not all but a great number of the off-off-Broadway reviews and off-Broadway reviews will be available only online. And no matter how terrible a movie is, how disgraceful a movie is,
5: It's here forever. It
2: gets reviewed, of course, at great length in the New York Times, and that has to do only with one thing. It has to do with the advertising dollar that movies bring into the New York Times, and off-Broadway and off-off-Broadway shows don't bring any advertising money to the New York Times, and so they are expendable. <laughs> uh, it's disgraceful.
3: It, it also seems sort of conceptually perverse. I mean, the, the theater as an art form is the one thing which has always distinguished New York from every other city and every other part of the country. That's less true now than it used to be, but certainly it has been traditionally true. And so to Demote theater uh, to diminish its importance within the pages of the arts and leisure section seems to me to um, uh, demote the specialness of the city which the New York Times is covering. Um, uh, you know, I think, not, and not only uh, is is the coverage disappearing, but I think we've all seen the tone and the quality of some of the coverage which remains begin to drift and alter over the course of the last, certainly over the course of the last several months. Um, some people would say that the, the sort of gossipy quality of some of that coverage is being driven by the success of a columnist for another one of the daily newspapers, a newspaper which is not read by anybody who's ever purchased a theater ticket, nevertheless, (laughs) within the theater community. (laughs) We all know what I'm talking about. uh, Within the theater community, people read that column. And The Times, it seems to me, um, uh, has tried to pick up, at least to a certain extent, the tone of that column. There was a a feature piece in the uh, Arts and Leisure section. Maybe during, maybe it was during the week, but three or four days before a new musical opened several months ago, and the the piece was a, a snippy piece about the author, and in effect, it reviewed the show before it opened, quoting not only the Times critic who would eventually review it, but the Times number two critic and a major critic from another, another newspaper. And I have frankly had never read anything like that in the Times before. I wrote a letter to the Times, it was published. That's fine, but that, that policy. Uh, the, whatever the editorial policy was which produced that article, I'm sure, remains in place. And it's a source of real concern for anybody who, who sits down <laughs> with an empty piece of paper in front of them and does this work.
2: I think everybody who watches this program, cares anything about theater, uh, get your pen and paper out and write to the New York Times and complain about it.
5: I mean, I, I also think this is part and parcel of where we're placing all of the arts. Um, this is a unique form. We are in a civil discourse and dialogue, um, and I don't know how other people feel. I'm I'm sure that New York uh, is one of the places that I come not just for theater, but so that I can see independent films um, that will not get to the Cineplex near me. If I go to the cineplex, what I am seeing is what I would call gladiatorial entertainment. (laughs) It's as if we are being trained to be gladiators for the empire. It is chilling and frightening. To me, the eradication and making invisible theatre is eroding our ability to sit in a room together and have a discourse and a dialogue as citizen participants in our democracy. And it is this that I am fearful of. Um, I am not, again, talking about the nature, the necessity, the delights and torments of criticism. I'm talking about the absolute erosion of our visibility.
4: But does it, do, you, do you think it has something to do with the nature of theatre altogether and the place that theatre still plays and what it will be? In the old days, theatre was everything. But now we have television to do the Boulevard comedies. We have um, movies to Where? do the large stories. Where
2: are they doing them? Well,
4: you know what I mean. I mean the, that that sort of silliness that we used to put. You know, the the the, the Gene Care kind of plays. Those are done on television, and and then movies do the, the 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 epic stories or the the passion plays, and and so theater is left as it was in the beginning to be. The place of ideas. Movies are about story. Theater is always about ideas. I
5: still think theater's everything.
4: But 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 I'm saying,
5: yeah. We have an audience
4: that that um that doesn't look to us anymore. You you brought up Spook House before. Um, Spook House was done. It was a play about a family that was ruined by a social worker.
5: Unbelievable! Uh,
4: great. The critics came in and said, "I lied." They said, "It's not true. This couldn't happen. No woman would ever stab her own son," and. You know, not weeks after the play was closed down by those right. critics, there was a huge scandal of social workers in right. New York. And I said – and I, like, stood there and said, well, I told you so, you know. <laughs> um, when I wrote my play at, um, 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 Safe Sex, um, which had nobody in the play that had AIDS, it was all about how it was going to affect all of us. The critic came in and once again said – he's not telling us the truth – AIDS is a disease that will be cured in the next year or so, it will never change our lives my play closed, AIDS is still here 20 years later, I was right, they were wrong. But, but I'm saying they, the, the critics – you talk about the critics – they don't even look to us. It's as if we sit down to fool somebody. I wrote a play to fool you, not to tell you the truth right. as it is. We're not looked at that we're,
5: way. We're condemned, no matter how much research or thought that we put into something because the critics will say it's not believable. Yeah, well, they by don't the way, what I'm saying, but they don't by know. the way, I they, interviewed of prostitutes in a stable awful, in Brooklyn, yeah. whom ha- th- and they had college degrees, and I know how these women talk. But it's not—they're too literate. Now, this happens all the time, and it's very, very interesting. Excuse me.
1: Was that for the old? That's that's what she was criticized for.
5: Absolutely. It's unbelievable. And they're they're going, well, you know, no, I don't know anything about prostitution. I do know a lot about whoring, and so do we all. Um, uh, (laughs) The inability to enter a play world as metaphor and insist that it is a literal representation of surface reality is a very dangerous political trend whose truth is it the reason that i am still in love with theater every time i see your play your play your play is that it is an emotional reality it is not surface reality it asks us to take an emotional journey it is not reality tv it is not everybody's reality i want to go to the theater And walk inside someone else's shoes and get (coughs) inside someone else's skin and leave my own body behind. That's why it's crucial for us in a democracy to have theater. Because it's not done by test marketing to get to the common denominator that washes out the specific, gritty, uncomfortable, delightful individual voice. And we have lost in New York the ability for us to go in a room and see someone else's voice and enter into their vision of the world. Instead, we want all of our meat chopped up in such digestible bits that I think <coughs> this is a, a dangerous political trend. I think that theater is the bird in the cage you take down in the mining shaft to find out if they're poisonous gases. And I feel that the New York Times is doing a political disservice to our health as a city, as a community, and as citizens, we are losing this muscle of empathy that only theater gives film does not film cuts up our our, our meat and digestible uh, bits by the editor by being in the film room but
1: you know Paula, what I mean? well sure, but but of course, uh, the New York Times may not be covering these things, and of course uh, As I I mentioned to you earlier, the listings in the back of the Arts and Leisure section have now disappeared as well. So it's hard for us to to track even that. And how many people actually have Internet access? You know, when we're talking about a democracy, we're talking about access. That's right. The question that arises is, you know, who has access to the Internet to go check the online listings? Right. Edward makes the argument that there's a, a commercial element to this. Because of the advertising and because of the shrinking amount of space.
2: Oh, I would li- I would like to think that that, that part of what the New York Times is attempting to do was uh, socio politically motivated. I don't think so, however. I think for the most part it is sh- uh, sheer and and, and uh, sheer greed on the part of the paper to get advertising dollars uh, from uh, from film. But you know it's only par- it's only part of the problem what the New York Times is doing now. Uh, You mentioned earlier that lots of wonderful revivals of plays on on, on Broadway this fall. Yeah, I looked at that list. I have a play on there, too. Pretty safe stuff, you know? Good stuff, but safe stuff. Is there a single new American play scheduled this uh, coming season for Broadway? (laughs) There may be one. I'm not even sure there is. There are a couple of British things, but of course...
1: Something new coming to Broadway, something o- new coming Broadway. All can only some st- to Broadway,
2: new if it's Edward Albee's play. Safe you revivals. Know. Again, this has to do with the almighty dollar. This let, has me, to
3: do. let me ask a question on top of that, and everybody can answer if they'd like. Uh, and the question is to what extent. What we think of as theater or playwriting has moved away from Broadway and, and, and that in, in a trend which is irreversible, and the second question is, how much does it matter? In other words, it, I mean, if Broadway really becomes a certain kind of musical theater theme park for a certain kind of audience, for a certain kind of show
2: we 're not terribly unhappy necessarily, a well, m- matter of fact, we 're often quite happy to have our plays done uh, in, in a 500 seat theater. Uh, with, with, with an enthusiastic audience. It, it, it is a kind of economic second-class citizenship, but that, but that doesn't bother us much. What bothers me more is if uh, the New York Times persists in making us totally invisible, simply because we want to have our plays done in, in, in a proper size theatre uh, in front of an enthusiastic audience.
3: No, no, my, my question was not an argument in support of one position or the other. Right. It really was just meant to be provocative. I agree with you. I mean, if you, but if you combine the fact that the, the coverage of Off Broadway and Off Off Broadway has been diminished with the fact that Broadway itself has separated itself from the rest of the theatrical enterprise in this country. You wind up with a very, very dangerous combination of circumstances. It seems I,
4: to I, I, it's my understanding, and, and you know, not that I'm going to make any more of an enemy of him than I, he already is uh, to me, um, but it was my understanding that when Frank Rich stepped into that position, he said, I'm taking. I am taking theater off the front page of the Arts and Leisure. It will now be movies because people don't care about theater, and I'm moving it inside. and And that is my understanding, whether it's true or not. If it's not true, I apologize.
3: I I, I only know from I, mean, <laughs> I, um,
4: <laughs> I apologize to that man for nothing.
3: I only know from keep saying
2: it though.
4: <laughs> no, I'm
3: not. I don't. I'm not going to contradict you. But I. I mean, I. I. I know Frank personally. I went to college with him, and um, there's no more passionate theater goer than Frank Rich. That's it's,
4: Theater goer is one thing, but he as I understand it, it was his decision to pull theater off the front page of the arts and leisure. I also heard he killed Hirschfeld, but I'm not sure if that's
1: <laughs> is- <laughs> 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 well, you know, this is this is sort of a good this is a good point, I think, for us to uh, to, to talk about. To talk about <laughs> the, the political elements uh, that that come into play, we're we're in a world now. Uh, we're we're in a time where there's a highly charged uh, election season uh, going on. Um, Edward makes the argument that this is pretty safe stuff. All very good stuff that we're seeing in the revivals of uh, Lacazette. Economically safe. E- economically safe. Not, economically not safe. intellectually safe. Th- there's a couple of things safe. I would like for right. us to to. to think about here for a moment is how the, those, might, uh, those productions reflect, the, if they re- reflect the politics of today, and how that relates back to their original productions. But first, I want to start with something I, I alluded to earlier when I mentioned Assassins, which was a heart-stopping production for me.
3: It, it was brilliant. Joe Mantello was a complete bullseye, it was great. Yeah. So and, and, uh, and, and completely deserved its five
1: Tony Awards and, and perhaps even more. What happened there, though? This was this was doing ninety-five percent business, and then it evaporated this summer. Is there a is
3: there? A I was, you know, <coughs> I, I was uh, a, as you can imagine. I was also upset about the schedule on which the show closed. Um, you know, we were playing to 95% houses. The actors never came out and saw anything less than what, it, if at least, felt like a full house. Um, the show had been extended beyond. I mean, uh, look, the Roundabout does uh, a, a series of shows, uh, um, one after the other, and there was another show coming into that space. Usually, it's somebody else's show, so you get angry. In This case, it was another one of my shows, so it was a little more complicated. <laughs> but um, the, um, uh, you know, and I've discussed <laughs> it at length. With Todd Haymes. I was not shy about about trying to figure out what what happened, and um, uh, the response essentially was an economic one, uh, not a political one, that um, uh, the 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 Sunday on which the shows closed, was coterminous with the point in which they'd put a certain block of tickets on sale, and that when they had put another block of tickets on sale, tickets which uh, covered the period of time which would have begun with the following <coughs> Tuesday night's performance, sales had been weak. That when the show opened, the reviews are really good. That it, it, it was not reflected in the sales the next day. The show won five Tony Awards, not reflected in the sales the next day. That whatever the audience, it's, it's, it's confusing. It's like whatever People were being told that this sort of Broadway musical was something they should go see. But whoever the audience was out there that would ordinarily have gone to see a show based on those instructions, and the fact that this was sort of an unknown Stephen Sondheim musical, those people did not come to the box office. Now, the theater was still full. The Roundabout had the previous season uh, been burned badly by a couple of bad decisions about recasting shows and extending shows, one of which was nine. Um, and they made a very, very conservative decision to close the show when they closed it. I think that, that if they could go back and do it over again, um, they would not have closed it so precipitously because it has provoked exactly this kind of conversation.
1: Well, this is a good way to lay that to rest.
3: Yeah. Now, there, there <laughs> on the other hand, there may, there may be more to the story than I have recounted here. But, um, uh, you know, Todd was, was completely open about describing the economic, uh, economic side of it to so me. said he had not been pressured by anybody on his board. You know, everybody always knew the Republican Convention was coming. I don't know that they knew that the show would win five Tony Awards and that it might, God forbid, run through the, <laughs> the Republican <laughs> Convention. Um, uh, it was always going to close around Labor Day. So it, it um, um, you know, I, I basically, I think I am putting those those rumors to rest. That does not make it. Any less disappointing it's, it is uh, people don 't always get your work right, and when a director and a cast and designers get it as right as they did with assassins, you want it to be there until nobody else wants to see it <laughs> you know right. and um, um, I have friends who, for one reason or another because they were out of town or whatever, you know thought they 'd they'd, they'd come back at some point in August and catch it then, and by then it was gone, so there are people who never never had a chance to see it so it 's uh, you know, I feel torn between enormous gratitude towards the roundabout, which did it and did it so well, and s- but still the frustration that it's, it is not still there for people um, to buy a ticket. But it, you know, it does circle back to the question you talked about critics in the Times. Back to the question of, of the New York audience, whatever that phrase means. But um, I was surprised that people did not turn out. Uh, uh, in, in larger numbers than they did to buy tickets to that show. Ticket-buying habits have changed. People, Because of 9-11, people don't necessarily buy tickets three months in advance. It's, uh, there's a lot of you know, sales of, uh, during the week when the people are buying tickets to see a particular performance. But even so, it felt like the show would receive more economic support from an audience than it did. Harvey,
1: let's talk for a moment about La Cage Faux.
3: And Faux. It's, it's
1: returning to New York now. Uh, we're in a time when uh, the issue of gay marriage is part of the discourse in this country. How do you think it reflects its own time, and, and how does it reflect now, and is there, are, are you revisiting the text? Now, that's a question I really want to ask everyone. Are you revisiting the text? Are you, are you making changes?
4: When they, came, when they came to me to do La Cage again, um, uh, they always want to revive it, just as it was, and I was not interested in bringing it back. Um, I, I felt it, it, it deserved a new production. That when it was done the first time around, um, 1983 was a different time. Um, we were scared. People were scared. Um, Tort Song was, and I think remains, the only gay-themed um, play to ever make money on Broadway. Many have come and gone, but none have ever made money towards on ramp. Five years, Um, Lacage is the only gay musical to ever make money on Broadway, Um, and so um, I I wanted it revisited and a a new production. And and certainly, (laughs) as as the writer of the text, and it's a very book musical. I I think there are only nine songs. I mean, there are reprises, but I think there are only nine songs in the whole show. It's a very book musical, and um, and it ain't Shakespeare. So I, you know, so my so my. even if it was, I would have rewritten him, too.
3: Um,
4: <laughs> but, but I sat down with, with the script, and I had no fear uh, of looking at it, and, and I started right from page one, writing new jokes. But when it came to, this, to the essence of it, to, this, to telling the story of this, this gay couple that, w- that had raised a child, and it was – I mean, it's a story about a marriage almost ruined, a, a marriage of twenty-some-odd years almost ruined by their child's thoughtlessness. Um, there was nothing to change, nothing of the politics to change. The the father of the girl is is the deputy general of, of the TFM, is what I wrote originally, the Tradition Family Morality Party. And as the father the boy says, well, I like that. Sounds had a little bit of everything in there. <laughs> um,
3: you,
4: you know, you didn't have to change that at all. Yeah. I, I didn't have to change their political positions. The th- fun was that I was able to put stuff back in that had been removed by them what was a little scared. I mean, and, and, it's, and it would not even shock you now. But so it's, you sharpened it's the edges, is Well, that no, I put, I've actually put some stuff back in. Like at one point, when the boy says, I'm, I'm, I'm going to get married to this girl, and I'm bringing the family here. Um, in a series of lines, the father says, you traitor, you Judas. Um, and then they wouldn't let me say the final word, so I made it, it was, you traitor, you Judas, you collaborationist. Um, but I'm able to put it back the way, what, to what originally what I wrote, and it, it will hopefully get a lovely laugh, which is, you traitor, you Judas, you heterosexual. Yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> well, there's your laugh. <laughs> so, so in a funny way, you know, that has changed. Um, um, so I'm freer to do that stuff. They were very scared to be sexy back then. Um, the opening number, we are what we are, you know, they all stood there in these sort of poses and mm. never touched each other um the the loving couple only kissed at the final curtain and then just on the cheek i mean th- we're not you know th- the boys girls um start the show naked um, and you won't i mean you don't see dingles and things <laughs> <by> <laughs> <love>. <laughs> but it's but it's much you more know? daring I'll explain later. <laughs> <laughs> I always have to explain to with later. Um, <laughs> and, um, but the fun part was also in casting, I could not get them to hire a gay person to play a role in this show. And, um, this. You know and, and i don 't think Arthur Lawrence would mind my telling the story that, that I said You've, these roles have to be played by gay people i don 't care. you have the greatest seventeen year old actress in the world. she cannot play a grandmother. this stuff she doesn 't know life has not taught her yet, and there are stakes, especially in a musical where you don 't have a hell of a lot of time for character development. There are things that a gay person baggage that a gay person would carry onto to that stage that i don 't have time to explain that they would that an audience would feel. That is the magic of theatre, you know, of, of what you, the actor brings, what the playwright brings, what the audience brings, that marriage. And anyway, um, heterosexuals played the leads. Um, during the run of the show, Keen Curtis took over, um, playing playing um, one of the leads, playing Albin. And Arthur Lawrence called me up on the phone after his first performance and said, I told you you were wrong, and you are not. And he said, what a difference it made when you finally had somebody who had been through those struggles all his life. So when he stood on that stage and finally was given the opportunity to sing, I am what I am, and you will not push me down again, um, that he had a whole lifetime to bring, we beg for that. So anyway, so now I don't have to face that kind of stuff. Um, um, uh, you know, and there was no problem of, of casting actors that didn't want to play gay, um, and there's and and it's a whole other it's a whole other ball game of the freedom. Just on this level alone, uh, if this makes any sense, when we had the very first rehearsal of the original production, and they put all of the drag queens in their high heels, they fell around, they tripped, they were hurting the ankles. You put this bunch in heels, honey. <laughs> There was not a uh, trippers. I mean, they, not one of these boys had, hadn't been in his mother's closet all his life. And <laughs> they were traipsing around, they were tap dancing, there was no trouble in heels at all. So, I, so you know, the, o- so the only problem with reviving Lacage is how damn old it makes me feel. Because those chorus boys were all just being born when we did it mm-hmm. the first time. Because I wrote the show before I was thirty, you
3: know, hey, Harvey, now I'm forty-two. When you did it the first time, and you yes. talk about, they wouldn't let us do this, they wouldn't let us do that, was it specifically kind. the producers, or was it a general feeling around the show, given w- w- the year when it was being produced, and, and what – the, they, in some large atmospheric sense, thought would, would work or wouldn't work with well, the Broadway you know,
4: audience? No, some, some of it is, is my darling Arthur, who I, who I love, but, you know, I read his autobiography and I certainly didn't recognize any of that stuff. <laughs> um, you, know, I, 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 um, you know, a lot of it, he was the, the leader of our ship and, yeah. and certainly taught me a lot of what I know, um, both as a human being and as a, as a writer of books. Um, but, but he was frightened. Um, you know, um, our producers were um, not so they, – because they had I, – I think they had – they, they never expressed it to me. It always came through our, our, our fearless leader, our director. Um, so so I don't know. But I, I don't mean to, to blame him or anything. It's, it was different times, and yeah. those were different careers, and they were, you know. Um, I'll, I'll tell you a, a story. Uh, I was at a – I was at a um, restaurant with, with some people and I was overheard by a waiter. Um Tortsong had, had just moved to Broadway from off Broadway and Lakage had just gone into rehearsal and I said something like, Yeah, I put I put, you know, talking fags on Broadway and now I'm gonna put singing and dancing fruits there too. Well, it got reported on page six. <laughs> and when I came into rehearsal the next day of Lakage, um, Arthur had the entire company stand up and turn their backs on me. And he said, We are not Fruits, we know not about
2: Arthur that. Arthur said, yeah Arthur.
4: but <laughs> ah, I love you, so um, <laughs> <laughs> your your silence says everything, <laughs> uh, <laughs> but you know, and I went home and story. and you know and Very wept great. for many hours, you know um but 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 that was. I mean, could you imagine if I said fruits now? I mean, nobody would, you know. I mean, and it's in the show. It's not like it was a word that wasn't used. I mean, the character says, suddenly you're no fruit just because you had sex with a woman once drunk at Lido. You know, I mean, it's, it's there. <laughs> it's not like it was a language, but that's, that was a different time. It was a different time. Um,
5: it's it's going to be interesting right now. That's a, a married it. woman talking
4: to you from over there. Yes.
5: married. She got married to her,
4: to her partner. <laughs>
5: But that's the interesting thing right now. when we're talking about, you know, uh, things being safe that are being done commercially right now, and how Lacage felt then, when the notion, I think of identity gay, lesbian, heterosexual, um, uh, ethnic, etc. and so forth, identity felt, in the Reagan years, much more separate. It seems to me that this particular election is trying to separate audience members, all of us, into those identities again now I, so i 'm wondering how it 's going to feel right now um, in an election year to see Lecage when there's supposed to be a constitutional amendment um, that 's trying to get passed that 's going to be very interesting, but um, I just want to say to you, by the way, I thought the original cast members did much better in heels than I could ever do. <laughs> <laughs> so I completely believed it, I, you know?
4: And may I say, you do much better in a suit than I shall ever do.
2: <laughs> oh. Well, the, 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 the
3: <laughs> <laughs> I had a sense had something to say.
2: I, I don't know, I'm having too much fun listening. Me too. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, the, the question of uh, does one change uh, a, a play one has written because yes. it's going to be revived. Now, Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf was written in 1960, so that's uh, quite a number of years, isn't it? That's, that's forty-six years, 40, forty-four years since I wrote it. And I am not the same playwright. Right. No, I, I wouldn't dream of letting somebody else rewrite my play. I wouldn't dream of it for a second, and therefore I'm not going to let me rewrite my play, because right. I'm, I'm a different person. I wouldn't let you do it either. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> thank you. Uh, but fortunately, no, nobody's asked, asked me to do that. Uh, it, it may – it, it – uh...
4: But, Edward, what you wrote is Shakespeare, so – No. I mean that play.
2: <laughs> that is true.
4: And, and, and obviously, you, we've known each other too long to know that I'd smoke, blow smoke up anything of yours. But, um, but you, you, plays like that don't come along. Those are, those are, those are those gifts that you just, you, you really wouldn't mess with. Yeah, I mean, but you
2: see, the mind's a musical. The problem, the problem. <laughs> the problem, Harvey, is I, I feel that way about every yes. single thing I've written. <laughs>
3: yes, the answer
4: is yes.
2: Oh. Uh, let me ask. Yeah, I should keep that note well, you wrote. Me right,
3: ma- <laughs> uh, let me ask. Can I? I'd like to ask sure. Edward a question because I, I, um, I guess I was I was in high school in Virginia wolf and it opened on Broadway uh, before Edward was Edward. Well, he was so, he was sort of Edward, but with a little A. <laughs> um, but it, it opened on Broadway, and I, I mean, I saw it three times, and and um, when you st- when you sit at the back of that theater, well, I guess Rent has now been playing <laughs> for fifteen years, and and you looked at that Broadway play audience, who did you see that you don't see anymore?
5: Oh, great question.
2: At, the, at, at, at Going to the theatre then?
3: At the, going to see a, a play of that seriousness in a Broadway playhouse, as opposed to at, at uh, Lincoln Center or at the Manhattan Theatre Club it's or so, the So: It's so
2: hard up. to answer that, because a play like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf, which got a lot of lousy reviews in the mm-hmm. dailies when it opened, by the way. Uh, Walter Kerr said it had a hole in its head, which made me wonder about what he was talking about. Uh, And uh, audience uh, reaction out of some of the weeklies uh, uh, got that play on its feet and and, it ran for two and a half years, uh, which was fine. Uh, So, why did the play become a success? Because the audience who went to see it told other people uh, and they liked it. I don't know whether it was the same audience that were going to other uh, shows on Broadway that year. Uh, I don't know how audiences have changed. I I do know some things about about audiences. The more ticket prices have gone up, uh, the harder it is for young people. One of the reasons that young people don't go to the theater very much anymore. Uh, They have their movies and rock concerts and other stuff to go to. But it's considered by young people to be an old person's uh, act- activity, and is considered not to have anything to do uh, uh, with what the world is all about, which, is, as we know, it, it is preposterous nonsense. But uh, when we did Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf on Broadway in 1962 for a total cost of $45,000, now uh, the revival is going to cost close to $2 million. We had ticket prices of $7. And now they're going to be $75, of course. Uh, I imagine the audience will be different, but uh, a play like Who's Afraid of Virginia Woolf brings with it a certain baggage of acceptance, a, a certain baggage of, this is something that uh, we probably should see because it was so successful. Whether that's, uh, that's a virtue or not, I don't know. It's awfully hard to answer how audiences have changed. I, I do know um, that the, the older I get, the more audiences seem to be about my age. And maybe forty-five years ago, they all seemed to be a lot younger. <laughs> I'm not sure.
3: Well, you know,
1: I think, we've been ta- I think for the past twenty or thirty years, though, we've been talking about the aging of the audience, and we keep talking about the aging of the audience, even as we work – you know, I, I teach in a drama department that has fifteen hundred undergraduates uh, getting drama degrees, and they care about theatre, passionately, theater, passionately yeah. about theatre. So there is a, an audience there. Yes. And there are p- opportunities through clubs and whatnot to get inexpensive tickets. I think uh, uh, Richard Christensen from the Chicago Tribune uh, once said to me that he, for his entire working career, which goes back, you know, f- almost fifty years, from this point back fifty years, people have always been saying that the audiences are getting older. And he believed, and I, I, I'm beginning to concur, that, in fact, it's... it's uh, an, a natural sort of thing, that people begin to become more aware of the theatre. But that doesn't mean we, we stop outreach.
2: Here's one disturbing fact, though. Yeah. Generally speaking, the last tickets sold for a straight play are the cheapest. Yes. Those are the last yeah. tickets sold. And that's those troubling. those
5: the youngest audience members. Yeah, that's troubling. Yeah.
2: I,
4: I, you know, having done Hairspray um, and, 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 you know, gotten to watch that audience on a, on a daily basis, you, you, there's, a, there's a natural progression of the show being open, from the theatre people who see it right away, and then you start going into the others, and all, and more and more and more kids. Um, but, but I think that's natural. I think it always – I mean, I was dragged to theatre by my parents every weekend. You know, we either went to the opera, the ballet, the theatre, or a museum every weekend uh, of our life. We had, But it was five dollar theatre tickets and ten dollar theatre tickets. And, and, and there then wasn't then, the internet yeah. to distract you. And there wasn't the internet right. to distract you. Though I think my mother would have, she was a librarian, she would have dragged (laughs) us anyway. But we had no, I mean, we were a poor family. We had no money, but we could do that. We could go to the theater. Uh, You know, Jack O'Brien always tells the story of some actors, I can't remember who it is. When theater ticket prices went up to $80, she said, $80, oh, I don't think I could be that good. Uh, (laughs) $80 eight times a week, I don't think I could be that good. And And I would think, you know, $100. You know, for for two and a half hours, and I think of, you know, shouldn't I be sending this to some kid in Africa? You know, or
5: (laughs) wasn't the first ticket to break the hundred dollars *Nicholas Nickleby*? Yes. I remember thinking how interesting that people are paying a hundred dollars to see Victorian poverty. (laughs) (laughs) That was kind of extraordinary. But a
3: lot of it over a very long period. A
5: lot of
4: it. And and they paid a hundred dollars, and then they brought a box lunch.
5: Yes, that's
1: right. That's right. Well, the other question that arises now, you, you said that Virginia Woolf, you wouldn't allow yourself to rewrite, and we spoke about this a little bit well, earlier. Well, mind you,
2: along, along, the, along the line, the, the number of times I've di- I directed the, the revival on Broadway in, in 1976 yes. with Colleen Dewhurst, uh, I mean little snips, little, little snips here and there. If I thought if I was being self-indulgent and the writing was good but it was unnecessary, you know, it didn't move the play forward or delineate character, it was just Edward being proud of his writing, I'd, I'd cut a little bit here and there. But no rethinking of the play, because this disturbed somebody, or might even become anachronistic, that's tough. If it's going to become anachronistic, it's going to become anachronistic, and, and, and I can't do anything about it.
1: Well, then, and then with the, the zoo story, uh, a few years ago, you did a little bit of a revision on it, that great play. and. Then you've written recently, and I told you my feelings about this already this beautiful, searing, well, it's a searingly funny new play, Home Life, as a companion piece to it. It's what happens to uh, Peter and his wife before Peter goes to meet Jerry. Mm in the park, uh, in the zoo story. And
2: the interesting thing there is I did not change a word of the zoo story. Mm-hmm. I, 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 wouldn't, I wouldn't do that. I did make a little cut in the zoo story <coughs> about uh, 12 years ago, one of the times I was directing it, because, um, again, uh, all be in excess. Uh, Jerry runs on the knife, he collapses on the bench, he's got a knife deep in, the, in, in his aorta, and in the original text, what does he do? He has an aria. (laughs) He talks for a full page, uh, saying what happened to him and what it means and everything like that. I I cut it down because you don't talk that way, and it's not an opera. That was the only change I made, and that was because I had been foolish, and I did it uh, uh, not that long after I wrote it. Uh, When I decided that it would be interesting to know what happened to the character Peter at home with his wife before he went to the zoo, so I would know more about the character Peter when I saw him on stage with the character Jerry. I knew I wasn't going to change a single word of of the zoo story, and I wasn't going to change the nature of the experience of the zoo story. I was going to uh, amplify it, perhaps. But but I I uh, wouldn't—I don't think any author should second-guess himself in 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 that sense.
5: I love death scene arias, by the way. Desdemona! I just what's
2: Desdemona without, <laughs> without
4: that great <laughs> Verdi
2: well, music?
5: that's Verdi. It
2: <laughs> doesn't work in shape. Desdemona,
4: of course,
1: is your play that's the other side of um, Othello.
2: That's right.
5: The
1: yeah.
5: Stole the it a female, bit. The yes. Backstage,
1: yes. <laughs> yeah, the backstage. <laughs> the backstage.
5: But I love – I mean, the, it's, 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 it's the quality of writing um, that I fall in love with, with other writers. Its something that is implausible, that's something almost <coughs> impossible. How would you, with a knife in your gut, but when I, when I go back and I look at the plays that I love, I mean, there are these extraordinary what, I know what's going to happen when I die. I'm, it's like, what, what did Isadora Duncan think in the last 30 seconds? She probably wasn't thinking in Jacobean poetry, you know, but and I know when yes, I die, was. I'm probably going to go, she oh,. Was. <laughs> she was. you think so. Well, I'll probably go, oh, oops, but when you read these great <laughs> works, they're saying things like, like, diamonds, we are cut with our own dust. I mean, isn't that wonderful if you could say that as your last <laughs> line as you expire? And to me, that's the wonderful thing about an Albee aria. It's the collapsing and the expansion of time. This goes back to what's surface reality, that I, I, I the thing that I love about all of your play worlds is that... I have to go with it. I have to ignore the laws, my laws of physics. I'm so sorry to be contrarian about this, but, but isn't I love that I love does that you can't aura. do.
4: That that when you sit down in the theater, if I say this is a barn, the audience will go, "Okay, it's a barn." Um, if I this exact same set, if I say this is a palace the audience is going to yes. see this at the palace but they won't do that with a tv show they won't do that with a movie they won't do that anywhere else and and that's part of the experience of of being in the theater
2: no i probably shouldn't mention the fact that <coughs> i cut a great a great deal out of the last aria sorry <laughs> of, of, of Tiny Alice the last time it was done. Now,
5: I know, you told me that, and I yeah. love the
2: first There was there <laughs> is, is Brother Julian. I seem to have this habit of giving arias to people when, when, when they're dying. He'd I been shot that. in the belly, and he was bleeding to death. I
5: loved
2: it. And, and, and he had an 11-minute uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> monologue. We had, we had a problem there during the Broadway production, the original Broadway production, with John Gielgud playing Brother Julian. I mean, he began rehearsals by saying, I don't understand a word of this play, not a word. (laughs) (laughs) And a week before we opened, we just started previews, I got a call that John wanted to have a meeting with the director and the producer and me, and uh, he announced that he couldn't possibly do that 11-minute monologue. Nobody could do it. I said, well, John, if anybody can do it, no. And I said, but I love it. God, it 11 yeah. minutes. It was, you know, I, lo- I loved it about as much as you did, yeah. as a matter of yeah. fact. I yeah. probably still do. I and, and I got rather annoyed during that meeting. And I remember, I don't know how I had the nerve to do it. I said, well, John, there are three choices. Uh, you can either do the first half of the monologue, you know, the first five and a half minutes and stop. Or you can start in the middle and do the second five and a half <laughs> minutes of the monologue. Or we can do hits. From the monologue. <laughs> no, there was a long silence. Right? And then John said, Very funny, Edward, very funny. That's a and
1: good John Gilgood, by the way. Thank you. Uh,
2: and, 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 and he did one almost as good. And, um, and we did hits from the monologue. And I, when we had the, the, a new production with Richard Thomas playing Brother Julian uh, a couple of years ago, four years ago. Uh, I said, oh boy, here's the opportunity, I can go back to the 11 minutes and make Paula happy. And so we did a rehearsal with the 11 minutes, and I began having a terribly uncomfortable feeling that John Gilgood had been right. <laughs> yeah. I mean, it wasn't Richard Thomas, who was very splendid, but yes. I was bored out of my mind. I kept saying, come on, let's get to the chase. Come on, <laughs> let's do it. And so I took the eleven-minute monologue, which I'd cut down for fi- to five and a half minutes for John, and I cut it down to a proper two and a half. And it was all because I was so in love with my writing that I, that I resisted doing something that was commonsensical.
5: You see, this is very interesting, because I tend to be... I, I do a lot of drafts, and I do a lot of cuts, and I want to get things shorter and shorter and shorter. Um, my problem is that I fall in love with the first draft of another writer, and I can't let it go. And I love reading those early drafts, and this is actually very problematic in that, in terms of the writers that I've worked with, I'm so entranced with that first vision of the world, that they listen to their own critic and editor, and they do the chops, and I'm like, oh, goodbye, oh, good- I hate to lose a word of it. Yeah. Um, and this is an interesting thing, in terms of of flaws, and I don't know how else to say this, but I actually fall in love with another play's flaws. I I think all plays, all theatre is flawed. And the wonderful thing is the discussion of the flaws, or falling in love with the flaws. I mean, every time people do another version of Shakespeare, they're basically looking at what do we consider a flaw, what do we not. and in terms of you saying, you know, here, I, I wouldn't touch the, p- the playwright, um, but you are, in essence, in terms of Tiny Alice, and you are, in essence, in terms of Zoo Story, reshaping it, I find it wonderful to have those variations out of there. Now, the one thing that always, I'm, I, I'm, I'm kind of mystified, is that people think that writing a play is neat and tidy, and that it comes out that way, and you move on to the next, and it's sort of like, Zoo Story begets. This play, which begets, who's afraid of Virginia Woolf, which begets, you know, Torch Song Begat," and so on. And I'm sure, it's, and it's not tidy like that. No. It's all of the the layers. One of the things which I'm going to try and do this year, as often as I can, uh, and I'm hoping by the time this air, airs, the critics will have taken me up on it, is I want to do playwriting courses for critics, New York critics. I want to do a playwriting workshop. Uh, with subscribers, I want to do a playwriting workshop with producers. Um, Because I really think that the more that people know what the theatrical process is, and the more that they can see the flaws, and the more that they can see the backstage, and the more that they can see the kind of interesting struggle to make a play come through, and the more that everybody knows that, in essence, they do have a play within them, the more I think that is going to flourish. I think that what's happened is that we've cut out knowing the process and having the process accessible, which is why it's great to have things like the 52nd Street Project. By the way, it'd be great to – has, has this program ever had uh, The I Young Playwrights on?
1: I don't think we've had the, the Young Playwrights on yet, the 52nd Street Project yet. No. Right.
5: But, I mean, it's just knowing the, the different stories, for example, on Tiny Alice. Makes me participate.
2: I don't. I don't do drafts. I do one draft. I know. And, and, and then cut. Uh, <laughs> I
5: tell myself that every time I'm working on the 19th draft, uh, Ed, yeah, that yeah, you yeah. only do one yeah. draft. It's
2: just that I'm I'm lazy. That's all.
3: When we uh, when Roundabout right decided to do Assassins, I I went back and I looked at the script and I haven't looked at it for I don't know seven or eight years really. And I read it, and I got so depressed, I thought, God, I used to be talented, now I don't know what I'm doing, you know? And I, and I went back into my computer, and I found the early drafts of it, in which the scenes were twice as long, and they were filled with terrible things, and I immediately perked up. I thought, oh, it? and I remembered what it, a what it, – you know, what a, I mean, it's, writing is awful. I mean, it's just, you know, what a tortured process it was to get it to the place. But I had to be, re- I had to be reminded. Well, that, that brings me, actually, to Pacific Overtures. Uh, I, did I interrupt you? Did you want to? No, no, continue? go ahead.
1: No, no, I, 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 I want to talk about Pacific Overtures a little bit because this is a fascinating musical that started its life in 1976, I guess, yep. on Broadway and came back to off Broadway in the mid 80s <coughs> and now is coming back to Broadway. And I've seen it everywhere in the past year or so. I think uh, in um, Chicago, a couple last couple of years, Chicago,
3: Atlanta, uh, Boston, London.
1: It was. Uh, it, this. Uh, a what's, what's going? How is this happening? This. What's going on? What's It's a little sleight of
3: hand in what looks like a million productions of Assassins in the last two years. It's really not the case. There was a. There was a just coincidentally there was a very good production in Chicago, which then went to the Donmar Warehouse in London, and um, a production that started at, in Atlanta at the Alliance Theater, which then moved around. I mean, this is a show which, over the course of the last twenty-five years, is, has been rarely, if ever, done. In part, um, uh, uh, because it's. It's, or at least in, uh, it appears to be quite somber. And we, we always, I mean, we were committed initially to the idea of having it performed by an Asian American cast. And when it has been done by something other than an Asian American cast, it really doesn't, it's, it's not, it's wrong. It just feels wrong. It looks wrong, feels wrong, doesn't work. And, um, um, you know, it, this production, which is going up at the roundabout now, uh, we're very excited about because uh, Steve Sondheim and I saw, I guess about three years ago in Tokyo, the first Japanese production of *Pacific Overtures* by this wonderful director, named Aman Miyamoto, and he he took it and just did it. I mean, he's totally unconstrained by any of the sort of this sort of, uh, um, the, uh, this sort of uh, nervous approach to the conventions of Japanese theater that have governed uh, governed other productions here. And it had enormous energy and vitality. And the fact that, given what it's about, the fact that the Japanese had taken its American musical about Japan and the United States. They were doing it in Japan, in Japanese, and that production was then brought back to the Lincoln Center Festival, done in Japanese with supertitles, felt like, you know, you want to shout Olay, like in a bullfight. It felt like it felt terrific. And so um, you know, now unhappily it will be done in English. We don't because <laughs> we're dealing with Asian American actors, but the cast is terrific, but it is still a, a Japanese director and his designers' take on this American musical, so it's going to be um, uh, fascinating to see the way it, it turns out. And it's at Studio 54. So, how
1: here. does the, how does the musical and its topic and its thematic how does that speak to us differently you th- now than it might
3: have then, or is it? Well, it's. I mean, it's interesting. It was. It, we got asked a lot in 1976 if it wasn't somehow really about the United States and Vietnam, and um, uh, that was a context in which the show was. Produced, But it, it was not a musical about the United States in, in, in Vietnam at all. I mean, my initial fascination with the material was with the material itself, with, was with this country with this highly developed, sophisticated, very pure culture, which had shut itself off from the rest of the world for 250 years, suddenly being bullied into what we think of as the modern world, and what happened as a result, and how that happened. Um, Having said that, yes, the war in Vietnam, America was was in the middle of a, uh, an adventure in Asia uh, in 1976, and w- now we find ourselves in the middle of an adventure in, in a in another country, in Iraq, and I think inevitably um, there will be people who look at the show with that in mind, and it'll be very interesting to see how they how they respond and how they react. I mean, we have you know, in keeping with what uh, mostly what Edward said, we have. We're cutting a little, ch- little snips here and trims there, but um, it, it's the first thing I ever wrote. I mean, I wrote the first draft of it in the Yale Law School Library as a way of escaping from becoming an attorney. Here I am, <laughs> 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 um, and um, so it's a very young work. But I looked at it, and I, you know, I changed a little here and a little there, but very, very little. I think it should stand as what it was, and I think, I, and I'm, I'm, I'm pleased. I'm very, quite pleased with it when I, when I listen to the show now.
5: You must have thought a lot about. Gilbert of Gilbert and Sullivan, while you were doing this then, or no? Oh, yeah,
3: yeah, yes. I mean, there, was, there were all kinds of um, sort of cultural influences kind of flying around.
5: Oh, I was actually thinking about the law school. No. Oh, excuse <laughs> me. <I'm> <laughs> 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 yeah, yes,
3: yes. It was. John, a, I staggered out of my first contracts class and I, I thought I got to do something Get else. Although I finished law school, I
4: love law school, I just didn't want to be a lawyer. Just interestingly, you said – you talked about the Asian-American cast. I I left the Dramatist Guild. I walked out on the Dramatist Guild and quit, because they wouldn't stand up against the producers of uh, Miss Saigon to insist on on using Asians in Asian roles. And I, I went to the Dramatist Guild and I said, Will we not take an artistic stand here? And they said, absolutely
2: not. You better get a guy for the money. Think, no, we said, they said not against
4: producers. We don't stand up.
2: Come said, back, we need your
4: money.
3: <laughs> we have nothing but Asian Americans in this cast of Pacific Overtures. No, well, but rejo- I'm saying that
4: was that was. Oh, should I come back? Yeah. Well, let's see. All
3: right, we'll we'll re- talk back. A little then. bit of recruitment going
1: on.
4: Absolutely. here.
1: Absolutely, we'll follow. I, what I'm also interested in, John, you're the you're the son of a noted dramatist, Jerome Weidman, and. You, you just mentioned that you were in law school when you were starting to write this, and you come out of a humor tradition at the uh, Harvard Lampoon and the National Lampoon. Uh, I'd, I'd actually like to take a few minutes just so that we can communicate with our students and with people in the audience beyond about how your life in the theater, your lives, I should say, in the theater, you know, sort of got started.
3: Well, I, I'll, I'll, I'll make this brief because I don't know that it's helpful to anybody. I mean, I I had. Uh uh, going to the theater my whole life, and uh, my happiest times were, were spent at the theater. But uh, it was never my intention to have a career in the theater at all. I didn't act in high school plays. I, you know, I was a, sort of a serious kid. I thought I would become a politician. And my dad, who was primarily a novelist, really only worked in the theater for, for four or five years, but he saw writing as, uh, as uh, a, a treacherous way to make your way through life. And was not uh, did not encourage either me or my brother to follow in his footsteps in any way. In fact, was pleased that we, we, weren't. But I did. I wound up in law school in the you know in the early 70s, which was still the 60s, and sort of aimlessly trying to you know drifting from, from kind of you know we didn't worry a lot about what we were going to do five years from now, five minutes from now in the 60s. And I just I, I, I looked at law school and I thought I I don't want to be a lawyer. This is not for me. What could I do? Right here, right now, and uh, I thought, you know, you could sit in the yellow school library with a legal pad and a pen, and write a play. I know what a play looked like. You put the character's name in boldface, and then you write what they say underneath, and then something comes after that. So I did it, and I did it the way you, you uh, with the innocence that you have when you don't know that you don't know what you're doing. I just did it, and I finished it, and I sent it to Hal Prince, who I had met with my Dad, and he uh, he decided to do it. Um, you know, he, he and I. It, which was, crazy. even now seems, I mean, crazy. Yeah. And, um, you know, we, we, we he was casting, and we were going to do it as a straight play, and eventually decided it needed to become a musical, and so that's uh, off to the races with that. But uh, this is really something I sort of stumbled into and then had to catch up with myself over the course of the next 10 or 15 years afterwards. Well, Paula, you have
1: quite a different experience in your trip through right. the theater right. um, journey.
5: Yeah, I um, was. My parents divorced when I was 10, and I I went to live with my mother, who uh, uh, was a secretary. So um, we were actually below the poverty line. We didn't have any money. Uh, No one in my family uh, before my brother and I had ever gone to college, and uh, we were out in the Maryland suburbs. I think I'd seen maybe one or two Uh, shows uh, on field trips. I was, however, addicted to a program on the radio called Matinees at One. And I would actually save up my money to buy musicals. Um, I would find, you know, bottles and wash them off for the two-cent deposit, save up the money, and then buy the original cast album of My Fair Lady. I was just in love with musicals. So I was in high school, and there was a drama class. I was 15 years old, 14 years old, I wandered in, they were doing Skin of Our Teeth, <coughs> and I thought, I never want to be outside this room again. And I just basically went and read every play that I could get my hands on, uh, won a scholarship to college, um, Brenmar, and started writing musicals. Beautiful Quasimodo, I wrote uh, a musical which outed the founder of uh, Brenmar College called Inner Own Image. <laughs> lesbian musical, and shortly thereafter got bounced out of Brenmar College. But at any rate, <laughs> at that point I was hooked, and went to Catholic University, I studied acting, uh, I performed as the killing of sis- in The Killing of Sister George as Sister George, and during the post-play discussion everybody said, well, we don't believe that you're a lesbian. So I realized I was, was, wasn't going to be an actor. <laughs> um, and I became a stage manager. I was a secretary and a stage manager. And I applied to Yale School of Drama, was waitlisted. didn't get in, and had a hunch I'd like teaching. So that's what I did. I went to a PhD program, which I got kicked out of. But same thing. I did incredible readings in the library, and then started writing plays. And since I didn't know anyone to collaborate with, I thought, well, you know, maybe I ought to learn to write a play without music. And um, that was basically it. I Went to every little tiny hole in the wall in this country uh, with staged readings in New York. I did three jobs in New York uh, secretarial, factory work. Um, worked at American Place Theater as Wynn's secretary. Um, never got done here. And finally, kind of went, you know, I can't afford to live in New York. Teaching job came up. I created a program for playwrights. And I decided I would look for the most talented writers who may not get into Yale. <laughs> <laughs> and I decided that this program would be for people who wouldn't have access because they couldn't afford grad school, so it's completely subsidized. It's tuition and stipend paid. That's great. And I decided that I would spend my time in the room producing between 10 to 20 plays a year <laughs> in different forms. And that's how I spent the last 20 years. And an interesting thing happened. Teaching, not, You know, I, I don't teach, but working with younger writers, they really kick my butt. And they say to me every day in workshop, I don't see how you can say that. I don't think a play is just that. I can prove you wrong. What about this? What about this? What about this? And just now, these playwrights are starting to come to New York and be know- you know, recognized, like Nilo Cruz. But I worked with Nilo ten years ago, and the things that he and people like Sarah Rule. I mean, uh, the, the writers I've worked with are extraordinary. Um, what it made me realize was that I have faith in the theatre. I believe it's important. I know that there are ways that we can make a living and still remain in the field. Um, it, they dared me to push the envelope. I have a very kind of different... Um, it was something like my 20th play, The Baltimore Waltz that ran for seven weeks, that Frank Rich gave a respectful review for, that suddenly I was discovered on my 20th play at age 38. Um, So my aim in life is to continue writing simply because I must be in dialogue back to these extraordinary young voices. But my aim in life is to make sure that these writers make a living, break through into the American theatre, ten or fifteen years before I did. That's my goal in life. And to stop the brain drain that we 're experiencing right now, uh, so that they're going, they 're going that they don 't go to law school or you know <laughs> they go to law school, no. but maybe as a sideline as a hobby, that their first love remains the theater so yeah it 's a, a very different i mean i 've been very, very fortunate with my students
1: well edward you 're a, a noted teacher um, in in your own career and have done quite a bit of that in the past uh, decade or so. What, what is it that drives you to give back in that way? I mean, you are one of the great playwrights of all time. You don't have to do that. What is it that, that keeps you going back into the classroom? Very much like Paula,
2: I don't think that I teach. Uh, I work with a lot of young playwrights, and, and I probably learn more than, more than I give, as a matter of fact. I, I, I learn more about playwriting. Uh, I, I like to... Uh, well, I, I, it's probably very, very selfish. Not only do I learn more than I probably give by by working with young playwrights, but maybe I can persuade them to hold the line against commerce and hold the line against selling out, and eventually we might have a theater that I'd like to go to. <laughs> I imagine it has something to do with that more than anything else. You can't teach, I can't teach anybody who's not a playwright how to be a playwright. I can teach them how other people did it, and they can do bad copies, which that's called playwriting a lot, of course. But uh, I, I like to try to help young writers who I think have this very, very difficult thing to analyze called call talent, it's this amazing this amazing mm-hmm. gift, which may, may be well-formed, may not be well-formed, how to proceed and hone that without selling out and, and, and without, uh, without compromising too much. And then if they can do that, if more people can do that, then we may have a, a, a better theatre sometime. And uh, that's the basic reason to do that. Uh, is it giving back? No, it's getting, which is why I do it. It's now, getting things.
1: In, in terms of collaborating with directors, how, do you, how does that process evolve for, for you? How does that, Now, it, one, Actually, the, the question I really want to ask is about development, because one of the things we hear about so much in playwriting today, and I hear this particularly from younger playwrights, is this development hell that they they're get forced, stuck
2: They're forced into it. They are forced into having their plays examined to see if there are any rough edges that can be honed down, if there are any dangerous thoughts that can can be taken out of the play. Most of the workshops that most young playwrights have to go through are destructive and cynical and having to do with making the plays safe rather than the exciting, dangerous experiences they should be. I I can't
1: imagine any of you actually getting caught in development hell at this particular time in your careers.
2: No, you have to say, go fuck yourself, if I don't true. like what you've written. Yeah.
5: Yeah. No, not true. That's right. And
3: I mean, I, you know, I was talking to Paul about this earlier. Um, you know, several years before this production of Assassins, uh, Steve Sondheim and I were approached by another um, very accomplished director who wanted to do the show again in New York. And we started to meet and to talk and to meet and to talk. And at point we said, look, I, I gotta tell you, it just didn't work the first time, and I know what you need to do, which essentially is to pull it apart and rewrite it. And we said, you know what, we think it we wrote what we wanted to write. We're satisfied with it. Let's be friends, but goodbye. And um, you know, when Joe Mantello came in, Joe acting as a director had very good ideas about how to tease out our intention as authors. But he did not impose himself on the on the authorial process. It was a wonderful, in that sense, it was a wonderful collaboration. But it's it's you know, for young writers, it's very difficult to resist. I think often when they're presented with the opportunity of a production, the thing they want more than anything else in the world, there's a director and a dramaturg in between them and that stage. And if they are made to understand that they will have to listen and take notes and that whatever their unique idiosyncratic voice is, it's going to get bent through these. These, uh, through these other prisms, it's a destructive thing. So
2: One of the things that the Dramatist Guild has been doing, and the Council of the Dramatist Guild, under your uh, stewardship as much as anything, is to try to make it possible for young playwrights to hold the line a- against the commercial and corrupting, corrupting pressures uh, th- that they're under. The only thing we can't do, the only thing we've not been able to do, is protect a young playwright from himself.
4: Yes. It, there 's a collaboration in theater as as, as we all know and, and, and where you hold, and where the original brain holds the line in, in collaboration is is always a di- you know when am I being difficult? when am I not you know listening to somebody else you know everybody in theater gets to with this stuff, and, but just to give you an example, Jerry Herman and I were on the on the phone yesterday now i 'm not Seventeen years old, and Mr. Herman is neither. And and we were talking, and it finally came out that neither one of us liked something going on with this. But we were both like too embarrassed to say. Embarrass I mean, with Jerry Herman and Army fucking Feinstien, we could say we didn't like something, <laughs> but we, you know, but we're like there, quietly going, well, maybe he's right, maybe we're wrong, you know. I mean, so so there is that that collaboration th- that's there. But um, Michael Feingold. Years ago, wrote a, a review of of a, of a Shakespeare piece, and he said, "Well, this season, I, I've seen so and so's production of *Hamlet* and the Shrew, and so and so's production of Taming and the Shrew, and I went to England and I saw so and so's production of *Hamlet* and the Shrew, and I saw this production of *Hamlet* and the Shrew, and so and so's production. Just once in my life, like, I'd like to see Shakespeare's production. Of st- you know, what did he want? And um, and sometimes it comes back to that. It needs to come back around to that original voice in the head right. that that we as writers." we talked so much about the empty page and that challenge. But for me, the challenge is that voice in my head that just makes me crazy until I finally write it down. You know, alright, I will shut you up already to write it down. And I, I don't not would have the problem with the empty page, I have the problem with, I don't want to write, you know, and well, they make me the, crazy until I finally put The
1: question down. that you raise, of course, is, what does a playwright want? Unfortunately, we've pretty much ran out of time today. So this has been the American Theatre Wing's Working in the Theatre seminar on playwriting. I'm Jeffrey Eric Jenkins. This is coming to you from the Graduate Center of the City University of New York. Thank you for joining us.